Today on Soundtrack Alley Spotlight, I will be interviewing Brian Ralston about his composing techniques and his amazing score for the film of Being Rose. I'll be sharing some of the music from the film and I hope you enjoy it. It's coming up and it starts now. I will share the interview with Brian Ralston, and I hope you enjoy the conversation we had, and I'll share some music from the film. Enjoy the interview. Brian, my name is Randy Andrews, uh, and I do a podcast called Soundtrack Alley, and um, I know you've, you've uh, with Kelly, she's introduced you, or to me, and uh you know, I found that it was really fascinating that you chose your players of your orchestra for, like, a cast of a film. Yeah. You know, there's there's a couple reasons for that. One, I think, when you're writing, you always write with really someone in mind. I mean, Conrad Pope, Orchestra in Town, says this a lot, that you're you're not writing for the instrument. You're writing for the player. Mm-hmm. And so, and I, and I truly believe that, and that's what I found myself as well, is that you really write for the talents of that player. You know, if I've done <clears throat> arrangements and organ and stuff for, you know, high school groups and, you know, at, despite what I want to write for trumpets, I know they can't play it. I'm writing for the players at a high school level, you know, but when you're dealing at a professional level, let's say you're really, you're really writing with not only the skill set and the talent, but the artistic interpretations of the players that you can imagine you want to work with. Mm-hmm. And so there's a creative reason for that. And like on Bean Rose, we, we did that. I, we really almost casted the score with specific soloists that we wanted to have in the score. And that's, we kind of built the score around that. There's also a logistical reason for that, that I was, I had to make an argument that I wanted to record in Los Angeles on union contract, you know, and um, th- that's not always going to be a successful argument and my argument was you know look we're writing for belinda broughton not -hmm. just any violin but belinda broughton and i'm you know not just any guitar but andrew sinewick Mm -hmm. and not just any native play wind player but chris blath who i've worked with many times before and is amazing and if you want them you're gonna have to sign an afm contract because that's you know they're in la and they're union players and that's that's how you get them no different than if you wanted sybil shepherd in your movie Mm -hmm. you're gonna sign a sad contract yeah. Because that's how you get her. And so <clears throat> casting, you know, it really became a very similar concept to we, we casted the score with these specific musicians. And since we didn't have, at least on Bean Rose, we didn't have a large 50-member orchestra. It was really about five or six people, soloists, playing mm-hmm. like kind of in a little country band. Um, it really was all about who is the soloist, not just what instrument was going mm-hmm. to be 
soloed, but who was going to be playing that? What skill set did we want? What sound did we want? So, so, so thinking about those players, yeah. those specific people yeah. with Belinda Broughton, is she by any chance related to Bruce? <laughs> she is. Oh, She's, okay. She is Bruce's uh, spouse. She's Bruce's wife. Oh, nice. Um, okay. And, you know, she has an amazing just history as a player. I mean, she's from New Zealand, um, basically raised in the UK. Um, she played as a young violin player on the original Empire Strikes Back score. Oh, wow. The so going all the way back there, she's done some amazing stuff. You know, flash forward in her life, she ended up finding her way to Los Angeles and becoming in the studio scene in Los Angeles where she ultimately met Bruce and they got married. And um, and had a family in L.A. and now she's you know the top call player violinist in L.A. and there's probably one or <clears throat> there, you know there's a lot of amazing violin players in town mm-hmm. but names that you keep hearing popping up as your top violin players you know Belinda is one of them. Nice. Um, there's certainly Bruce Dukov in town who's played for me before and uh-huh. you know there's a few others and. Mark Robertson is frequently um, a principal as well on stuff that he does. But, you know, there's there's a lot of amazing players, but there's a few of them. You know, I may not specifically choose all 16 violins in the violin section, but I know that if I specifically choose Belinda to be my principal, then she and I can communicate in a way that she understands what I want and she will disseminate that information to the rest of the section and, and really get that out of them as well you know in terms of bowings in terms of phrasings in terms of all the little details that i don't know because i'm not a violin player you know yeah um that she can um communicate that to them a lot better oh, and so very, very nice. I, yeah, yeah i really feel composers if they can develop relationships at a minimum with who their principal players are mm-hmm. they're going to have a much more successful recording when they use live groups yeah that I mean, that whole conversation, it just, it opens up a billion questions yeah. uh, about like her past career. And it's like, wow, now I want to interview her. <laughs> <laughs> well, we can probably make that like, happen. She's were, amazing, you, know. you know, it's like, what were her experiences on Empire Strikes Back? And, Absolutely. Oh, man. Yeah. yeah. I'm, a, I'm a big person on uh, loving Empire Strikes Back, and I just listened to the soundtrack show and it was the fourth part that I was listening to of the empire strikes back. And, uh, that was brilliant. And it just, it was really unique how they brought that, all that out. But we're here to talk about your music and, (laughs) um, that's really intriguing how you specifically pick these people. And, do you listen to like samples of their music prior? Do you go to their concerts to see how they perform? Um, how did you come by their careers or what did you hear from them that made you choose these specific people? You know, I think, I think the, the industry that, that we're in out here, the entertainment industry in Los Angeles is really a small town. Mm-hmm. <laughs> At, most everybody knows what everybody else is doing. You're only one degree away from, you know, some other name, person, musician, composer, whatever, you name it. And and these are people that I've just come to know over the years. I mean, Bruce Broughton teaches at USC's uh, film scoring program. It's a program that I went through 
um, in 2000, 2001. And, you know, musicians like Belinda and then there's also like percussionists and B. Gordy and a bunch of these people, they do a lot of recording sessions for UCLA and USC film scoring programs. So as young students or young people in the industry, you get to learn who they are. You get to work with them. And, you know, just over the last decade, I've come to know Belinda and her sound and what she can do. I've hired her to do little demo cues for me that I really don't want to have it be sample mocked up. You know, I, I really want to have a live violin come in and, you know, play on top of my string samples, but give the solo part just a sense of realism to get across in the demo what I want. And so it's I can't really bring it back to any one thing. It's not like I'm looking at resumes or mm -hmm. demo reels. It's just getting to know them on a personal level. Um, I will say that for the people I don't know, you put a lot of faith and trust in your contractor. Mm -hmm. So I've used um, mostly Noah Gladstone in town at Hollywood Scoring. Noah is great. Noah is a trombone player himself, so he comes from the ranks of musicians. Um, but he's also a contractor. Um, who I truly view as kind of the next generation of contractors in town. And um, Noah has a lot of respect from a lot of people. So if there's somebody that I need or an instrument that I need, a player that I need, that I'm less familiar with, Noah will make a recommendation and um, tell me why, and then I'll go research them, you know, and maybe have a conversation about the music. And, and um, you know, and then it might become a little bit more like an interview. Is this the right artist to really play this but studio musicians in la are so good i mean you know it could be someone you've never met in your life and they they come in and their attitude is just perfect and i and i mean that with all sincerity i mean they come in they really want you as a composer to get what you want and to succeed and so they um they come in they sit down they knock it out and you know in one session it's perfect i mean literally the first run of a cue is usable Mm -hmm. You know, and then and then you do another couple takes to kind of get out the detail that you want, or try something a little different the next time, and then you move on to the next cue, and um, they're that good. And so, you know, it's it's not something that I really fret about anymore that I'm not going to be able to find the right person if it's not someone I have a relationship with or I already know. It's it's someone that my contractor is recommending to me. All so. right. Well, that's that's really well explained. I, I really liked how you brought that out. Um, Thanks. Yeah, you're welcome. Um, what do you do to determine what music you want for a film? Sure. I you know I think first of all, every film you got to research somehow, right? Mm -hmm. um, but I don't think you're always necessarily researching musical style. You're researching really what the film is about. You know, is this a love story? Is this a spiritual journey? Is this a comedy? Is this action? Like, you really have to get the heart of the emotion of what purpose the music is serving. Mm -hmm. And that is certainly going to influence then your choice of what you want to... You know, at heart, I'm an orchestral guy. I, mm -hmm. I love using, you know, I view it as an instrument, the instrument of the orchestra to really just have a, so many colors out there that you can do anything you want. Um, I have mixed electronic with orchestra. Mm -hmm. I'm getting better at that, I feel. But it's not my primary tendency to do. Um, and that's just because what I'm familiar with. I, I'm a trumpet player. I was raised in the orchestra. So I, I know the color palette of what orchestras do. And I do feel that an orchestra kind of stands the test of time in terms of feeling dated or not. You know, mm -hmm. um, I mean, it, it, on the contrast to that, there's no, like you listen to Top Gun and, 
and that big, you know, electric guitar playing that melody, um, it just sounds so 80s, you know, because mm-hmm. it was cool at the time, but the the use of that sound and that instrument and in your score is going to date it in a certain way. Whereas orchestra stuff tends to almost feel timeless. Mm-hmm. So I think if you can get at the heart of a movie, getting back to your question of what it's about, you can really start to narrow down, okay, musically, how are we going to represent that? And, um, you know, in Bean Rose, for example, uh, we really came to the conclusion that this was, there were two stories being told. There was a love story between Rose's character and Max, which is Civil Shepherd and James Brolin's character. Mm-hmm. But then there's also a spiritual journey of uh, Rose as she travels. She, she gets a diagnosis that she's basically going to die in a few months. And, um, and it's her spiritual journey of coming to grips with that and, you know, finding herself, being okay with that, all that stuff. And so that spiritual journey really had a sound that needed to be different from the love story. Mm-hmm. So we treated the love story sound like a country band because she fell in love with a cowboy and mm-hmm. that's where the guitar came from. And that's where the violin came from, which was played more in a fiddle like style. And then the spiritual journey came from the landscape of the film, which was shot in New Mexico, um, takes place in New Mexico. It's intended to be there. And, you know, that Southwest United States is a very spiritual Native American influenced place. Mm-hmm. Uh, I lived in the Southwest for nine years, uh, undergraduate college in Tucson, Arizona. So I was really familiar with just the impact that Native American culture has on that whole desert Southwest landscape. And we felt her spiritual journey was best represented by that the spiritual quality of that land. And um, the director always felt that that was like the land was calling her back and in our in our you know musical interpretation of that we we had to use native american music mm-hmm. so now you have the purpose of the film one love story two spiritual journey in a in a very native american influenced place deciding for you what kind of music the film has to have mm-hmm. that's and that's, we that's... just went from there oh nice nice i yeah. didn't mean to interrupt <laughs> no no that's good um, so what, ha- what influences have you gone through to achieve, uh, um, how you compose through such a simple musical storytelling? Like, like who maybe has been an influence for you? Making uh, such you know, simple I, music. I say this a lot and I say this all the time, but James Warner for me is probably the film composer who whose style and whose tendencies really, in my mind, scored my childhood, mm-hmm. scored movies of me growing up. That That's how I became a fan of film music in general was really through his scores. And I think if there's one thing about his scores that I can narrow it down to is his use of melody. And his melodies, for the most part, are very memorable and mm-hmm. very simple. Um, he does have some melodies that are that are very long and lyrical, but for some reason you remember them, you know. Um, and almost every one of his scores that had a memorable melody also had a top forty hit song based on that melody that came out with the movie. You know, from somewhere out there, you look at Titanic. Mm-hmm. I mean, even like Bicentennial Man had a Celine Dion song that was on the radio playing. You know, and that was based huh. on his score. So. I didn't know that. Yeah, so he wrote a lot of his melodies in song form mm-hmm. in the score, and those melodies 
lent themselves to being really songs that you would remember. And I think it makes it's a it's a style and it's an intent that allows regular non-music people to really latch onto it and remember it. You know, they hear that song and they relive the movie through that theme and through that melody. And so, um, you know, I, I, I really have to give nod to, to James Warner and his style. I mean, that's, that's kind of how I grew up. And I, I find myself now as I do my own thing and trying to find my own voice in the scores that I do kind of living in that similar world, you know, um, doing things that he wants to do. I mean, the technical reason for it, you know, there's a lot of lithium mode. There's a lot of not having a key center and other things that he did that just kind of speak to me as how I want to, the color palettes that I want to use as well oh, musically. Yeah. But yeah, but. that's, that's fabulous. Um, always been a fan of James Horner and I really like the music that you've composed for being Rose. It's, it's very Thank you. Uh, unique and I, I like the simplicity and yet there's, a light, a light lyrical way about it that makes it very easy to listen to. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. You know, it's, I think it was truly a, a, an experiment of, and this came out of budget of, you know, how can you make something big and emotional, but you don't have, you know, the six figure budget to mm-hmm. have a huge orchestra do that. You know, can you make something emotional with five people? Um, and so you're, I was already limiting myself on purpose to the soloists that we chose and, um, really seeing how much we can squeeze out of that. And so, yeah. So I have a unique question that I like to ask everyone. Um, if you had a dream job to compose for a project for TV or for film from the past or the present, what would it be and why? (laughs) <laughs> Consider I have to have one dream. Uh, <laughs> well, you can have many. <clears throat> yeah, you know, I there's one thing I had. You know, my first job out of USC was doing some ghostwriting on a TV show um, named Angel. Um, Rob Crawl was the main composer, and and I worked with him for a very little time in season four, and um, and then Rob moved on to other things. Um, he he had another assistant already and I came to help him with some stuff. And then his palette, he had another show that got canceled and then he let me go. And, but that was my last foray into television. And I've always liked it. But at the time, television was very different. It, it was, it was not the same schedule and the same kind of production as what we see today. Today with Netflix and Hulu and everything else, they're not really doing episodic television um, conceptually they're they're doing 12 hour movies mm-hmm. and they just break it up and release them all in the same day you know and so you can binge watch you know you name it the whole season at once but but production wise they're not shooting these ongoing they literally are shooting the entire season in one long production and the composer at the same time is also scoring that in one long post production process so you know a lot of people that I know have worked on these shows you know, they've scored episodes one, two, three, and then a, a character comes in on episode four and they score it and then they develop a new theme that they think, you know what, that would actually be more appropriate back in episode one when so-and-so came in there. And so they go back and they rescore episode one, kind of incorporating what they just learned about episode four. And, you know, and it's the process is 
much more malleable and mm-hmm. and in my mind much more um like a long movie you know so that intrigues me because in my world i, I think longer format storytelling has always been um what i'm interested in you know not the tv bumper thing not the mm-hmm. <laughs> not the little uh you know non melodic tension whatever and then it you know quickly goes out to commercial like i just i don't i don't resonate with that creatively um, but the, the way new shows are being done, they really are being done more like movies, both production wise and creatively as well. And so I think getting back into television or television show, you know, you've got, you've got some really amazing shows coming up in the next few years. Um, you know, even like the Lord of the Rings show on Amazon and everything else that like those things, I, I know creatively I would knock out of the park. The question is, is, you know, could, could I prove and I believe I can, but I would still need to do it. Could I prove to the powers that be that that I would I could you know give them what they want and and handle that at that yeah. level, which, which which I know I can, but it's not you know I have to show that. Mm-hmm. Um, so shows any shows like that that gives me kind of an epic or grand landscape to have melody, to have themes, to develop multiple themes with characters and story arcs, and you know like I said like you've got these 10, 12 hour movies that are, you know, a season long, essentially. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I don't that's, know. We'll that's, see. that's a nice idea. I would love to see your name attached to the Lord of the Rings show. <laughs> Thanks. That would be great. We'll um, see, right? Fingers crossed. Yeah. Crap. You know, I mean, you never know. Um, so what other projects are you working on? Can you tell me about? That's the trick, right? Because yes. one wants us to talk about anything when we're in the middle of it. Um, <laughs> you know, one project I can tell you about, which is actually really exciting to me because I am a producer on it as well. So therefore, I can talk about it all I want. <laughs> so I guess I am my own boss. Um, we, we, I'm with a writer friend and some other people were developing a horror thriller film. Um, right now it's called Is Someone There? Um, and... Uh, Benicio del Toro, through connections that we have, and one of our other producers on it, was able to come in um, as an executive producer, really kind of giving, uh, lending some guidance and some, um, you know, opinions on things, um, and that certainly helped with our financing that we got. And we shot shot the short film. Um, it is a proof of concept short to get a longer feature made. Mm-hmm. So you know, there's there's many paths to get a feature film made. Um, sometimes you do a short film just for the sake of a short film and that happens to get you noticed at a film festival and then people want you to expand that or remake it into a feature. We kind of know that we wanted to do this feature and we took a 10 minute chunk out of the first act of what would be the feature mm-hmm. and uh, shot it as a short and it does kind of stand on its own, but it is a little different. I mean, it's the feature script had not been written yet. It was more like an outline form. And so we, our writer, uh, director, who was a friend of mine from previous projects, um, wrote this thing. We shot it and we raised a lot of money. We actually recorded a live orchestra score at Warner Brothers for the short film, which is kind of unheard of for short films in the film festival circuit um, to have that kind of a score. Um, so, I, you know, it's it's actually if people go to YouTube and type is someone there and Brian Ralston, you'll see like a little suite of music from it oh, okay. that I put on YouTube. Um, that I put together from the short film. You won't see the film. You'll just see me with the orchestra and mm-hmm. everything else. But um, 
so that project, uh, we are about to start our festival run, which, you know, there's nothing ever guaranteed, but there's a whole slew of festivals we've applied to. Um, you know, horror thriller films, it's, it's kind of weird getting into film festivals. You don't, you know, they're so political and horror thriller films, even like the Oscars and the Emmys, they, horror thriller just doesn't get the right attention that, you know, there might be one a year, like a get out or something that everyone loves because of who's involved. But in general, um, they tend not to get programmed in a lot of festivals. So a lot of these festivals have popped up horror thriller festivals where there's nothing but horror thriller oh, okay. films. And so we honestly, I'm, I don't know where this is going to end up. So, you know, it's, it's most likely not going to go to the Sundances or the Tribeca's or, or, or anything like that. It's mm-hmm. probably going to end up in a horror thriller fest somewhere. Oh. Um, which so I hope. it could end up I, in Kansas city. Maybe I think there's one. In there Kansas a good one there? City, I think. Well, I'm the one applying. So okay. it, you think I should apply there? Maybe I'll apply there. I think I should. Because <laughs> then it'd be much closer for me to actually go. Yeah, absolutely. So. I, I will I will definitely research that and look into that. You know, it's once you get into a festival somewhere and, you know, you get a little buzz about it and it does hopefully well, um, you know, then you can kind of generate some, hopefully some energy around it. You know, mm-hmm. okay, we have a feature script and we want to turn this into a feature and here's you know, this is kind of the look and the feel and everything about it. But of course the feature is its own animal. So, Mm -hmm. um, so 2019 will be kind of the festival push and hopefully 2020 going forward will be about trying to get money raised and greenlit for a feature. But again, you never know. I'm, you know, all of our eggs are not in one basket. So there's other projects we're developing right now as well. And, um, nice. You know, starting to get into producing, mm-hmm. um, aside from composing, is also interesting. So, when I'm not, you know, writing music, um, I'm also, you know, helping out with these other projects and getting involved as, on a producer level and some other things. And that's that's interesting too. So, well, that composing will always be my yeah. Composing will always be my main thing. It's it's the thing. It's my passion. It's what I love. But. You know, composers are really producers. I mean, you're mm-hmm. you're producing the music department and you're solving problems on a smaller level. And I have found that I tend to be pretty good at solving problems. <laughs> and and a lot of people tend to ask, well, hey, well, can you help us with the sound thing? Or, do, hey, yeah. do you know anybody in visual effects? Well, and that just expanded to doing post-production stuff and post-producer and then now just producing and people asking me if they were – if I would come in and help produce a project and um, it's a little hard to say no. when you know, some people that I respect are asking me to come on board like that. So, Oh yeah. yeah. That's super cool. So where can people find you? Like there's a few on the yeah, internet. Sure. sure. There's, you know, Brian Ralston.com <laughs> is my main okay. website. Everyone's right. got a website with their name. Um, that's my main thing. You know, Twitter, it's at Brian Ralston. Uh, Facebook, Brian Ralston composer is my Facebook, uh, musician page. Um, you know, I also do a podcast, oh, uh, coincidentally, nice. uh, the scorecast, scorecastonline.com. Scorecast. And, um, you know, I've we are kind of, of, yeah, we're kind of the inside baseball. Uh, you know, it's podcasts by composers for composers, although I'm trying to expand that and get, bring in some non-composer guests that mm-hmm. composers work with. So we had Damon Tedesco on our last show that he did. Um, you know, he's on staff at Fox. He's an in- a recording engineer. 
uh, looks at Fox. Do you know the person that does a score to settle? No. Okay. All right. I just thought I'd ask because, yeah, they're they're from L.A. as well. Okay. So. <laughs> so, so yeah. So you know, and I also, um, you know, I teach in the UCLA film scoring uh, program at UCLA Extension. Oh, nice. So I have one class every spring and one class every fall where I teach the business of film music. Oh, okay. And, uh, so we we are in our um, spring quarter now. We just started a couple weeks ago, and um, so I have guests come in every week from different parts of the industry, from publicists to you know lawyers and managers. And I do have composers coming in, um, but I I also have other people coming. You know, people who are assistants to composers, talking about the assistant life, and so composers who want to. You know, I get a lot of emails, believe it or not, of people asking me if I private teach or private tutor them or whatever. And I always point them, you know, I really put all my efforts into the UCLA program when I do that. And that's kind of the place to go. And I'm like, if you want to, if you want to hear from me on that stuff, take the UCLA class, you know, it's like, so that's, that's another place people can find me. But, but the web, you know, my website is probably the main, the main main place place to find. Yeah. And from there you can get the, you know, the Facebook and YouTube and everything else. Yeah. That's, that's really fantastic. I, I, it's really fascinating to learn even what the business side of film composing is and everything. And sure. um, I really want to thank you for taking this time out of your busy, busy schedule uh, to be interviewed and um, welcome back. After enjoying the conversation with Brian Ralston, I'd like to share some music from the film. First, I'd like to play The Journey Begins, Falling in Love, Lily's Wisdom, and Leave Something Behind. I love how these first cues are so simple, and yet so profoundly powerful in their execution. I really love Brian Ralston's work with his five players with guitar, violin, piano, percussion, and woodwinds. It's brilliant, so I hope you enjoy.
Next, I'd like to play In Love with Cowboy, Tension, Rose's Instructions, I'm Dying, and Surprise Me, Lady. These really flesh out the love story for the film and show us the heart that Brian Ralston's composing brings out. Enjoy.
This week on Soundtrack Alley Spotlight, I'll be delving into the music of Basil Palladoris with Cherry 2000. I'll go into the background just a bit and really share my feelings on the score. It's all today, and it starts now. I'll be discussing Hello, I am your host, Randy Andrews, and today I've decided to delve into Cherry 2000 from 1987. I went back and forth wondering if I should choose a movie I've never really seen, like Beetlejuice, or choose a movie that I've actually enjoyed and really appreciated the score even more. With Cherry 2000, yes, it wasn't an excellent film, however, it's post-apocalyptic and there's Melanie Griffith in it, and it's fun and slightly disturbing for some of the film. I think it holds true to the main genre for the type of film that it is. What's Cherry 2000 about? Here's the basic plot. In a post-apocalyptic California of 2017, Sam Treadwell, David Andrews, manages a recycling plant. His companion is Cherry 2000, played by Pamela Gidley, a lifelike robot who caters to his every need. When Cherry expires, Treadwell refuses to settle for a newer, less attractive robot. Salvaging the chip containing her personality, he hires tracker E. Johnson, played by Melanie Griffith, to lead him through the lawless desert zone where a replacement Cherry 2000 model can be found. 
This is what I love about this film. It's set in 2017, and this film was made back in 1988. Everyone sure didn't have a lot of faith in the societies of the time. Anyway, Basil Pelodorus did the score for the film, and I just adore this music. This tongue-in-cheek, B-rate science fiction action flick stars with Melanie Griffith, as a female mercenary in the post-apocalyptic world of robot infiltration, societal disorder in California and Nevada, with flashy cars, atrocity dumb dialogue, I'd have to differ on some of that, and futuristic sexuality on the line, the film holds no punches in its light-hearted Mad Max depiction of future societal brutality. Cherry 2000 was the kind of project that allowed the composer, Basil Palladoris, to use the opportunity as his own testing grounds for his budding instrumental ideas, especially involving synthesizer techniques, and have unhindered fun in the process of venturing into the realm of futuristic western. By this time, Palladoris was beginning to really get the knack of combining massive orchestral performances with trademark electronic rhythms and synthesized instruments, setting the framework for a variety of subsequent hybrid scores, culminating, interestingly enough, in Free Willy. While Robocop was initially the more popular expression of this experimentation, Cherry 2000 would eventually reveal itself to be the dark horse winner in these endeavors. Cherry 2000 makes its name with personality alone, tackling the futuristic western genre by expressing itself with backwards-looking themes against a backdrop of synthetic rhythm, rhythms and electronic guitars. The Hungarian orchestral performances highlights several well-developed themes, and as usual for Palladoris, these motifs weave in and out of each other in every cue and change their guises as the score progresses. The film opens with Palladoris' sappy love theme, a wishy-washy and overly sensitive representation of the male lead's obsession with his Cherry 2000 quote-unquote sex robot. Intriguingly, while this idea is conveyed by strings and solo woodwinds throughout these early scenes, and many flashbacks with his love affair with the machine, Polidorus shifts to the electronic realm for the romantic interactions between the man and Griffith's mercenary. It swells into an action theme during the plane sequence in End of Lester, and explodes with banging chimes and full symphonic glory at the outset of The End, with almost ridiculous pompacity. In many ways, the love theme is the core of the score's narrative, which is really unique, the only idea to truly evolve throughout its length. The nutty villain, Lester, is treated with a quirky, keyboarded idea starting in moving and dominating the second half of the score, in truck fight, and Lester on the move. Polidorus combines the strangely light-footed Celestia-like tone of the synthetic keyboarding for this motif 
with muscular orchestral backing, an odd but effective approach to the character. In both Truck Fight and Lights On, among others, this motif is overtaken by the primary Western-themed to the female mercenary, which is played by Melanie Griffith. Almost the entirety of Polidorus' tribute material is to Ennio Morricone in Cherry 2000, and it's dedicated specifically to Melanie Griffith's character, though the stylish solo electric guitar in Drive to Glory Hole is an early exception. Several different phases within this theme clearly addresses this parody element, none of with fuller development than in the latter stages of Thrashing of Sky Ranch. The light treatment of this idea early in E Flip Sam is notable in that it represents practicality, the only off statement of the identity. Polydorus is almost constantly heard exploring one of his amusing parody themes. There are even a few secondary ideas for specific themes, a notable one for the harmonically pleasing rising figures at the end of Magneto, and with the synthetic choir during the entirety of Pipeline. The mock of Western rhythms by themselves are a subset of the heroine's theme often including deep brass, minor third percussions, and standard percussion appropriate to the genre, but usually accompanied by futuristic waves of electronic mastery foreshadowing the tones of wind, especially at the outset of End of Luster. In the cues like the barricades and photograph, which photograph will not be included today, uh, these cute but very palatable rhythms carry passages often about a minute long. The highlight is that it loops into their synthetic effects, and it's arguably like Lights On, a cue accompanying the start of the climatic fight in a Las Vegas casino, but opening with 20 seconds of futuristic wonder that most sci-fi movie makers would probably love to steal for the opening frames of their own project. The last 80 seconds of Thrashing of Sky Ranch, however, is more sustained, singular in its highlight that employs some challenging rhythmic meter changes that brilliantly express the composer's knack for playing to the stereotypes in the genre. On the whole, while Palladorus accomplishes with this charming combination of future and past, is a remarkably effective score with a very distinct personality. Nothing remotely like Cherry 2000 has been written by Polydorus or any other composer before or after, making it a very refreshing glimpse into an untapped subgenre of parody. There's a touch of Jerry Goldsmith to be heard in the meandering light electronics at times, especially in the sensitive woodwind and keyboarded statement of the live theme in Ambush in the Cave. The vigorous pace of its chase cues offering familiar deep and pulsating synthetic rhythms with pounding timpani on every measure. The Hungarian ensemble utilizes, utilized for Cherry 2000 doesn't seem to be that large, but their lack of depth is fully compensated 
for by a driving enthusiasm for in their performance. Some of that creative, flashy soundscape is written right into Polydorus' composition, but sharp performances by every section of the orchestra highlights cues throughout the score. The ensemble is enlarged by a wet mixing sound and deep bass bass. The bass strings will cause your floor to vibrate, which is pretty cool. And that allows the electronic instruments to echo along with the organic elements. This effect also enhances the futuristic feeling of the score. In sum, Cherry 2000 is a comedic western parody with electronic guitars that never sound hokey, and how Palladoras managed to pull it off so well is a mystery. It's a perfect match between synthesizers and orchestral traditions, with neither element allowed to overshadow the other. It stands alongside Goldsmith's Hoosiers as one of those great electronically rooted scores that sucks you into its themes and emotions to such an extent that even ardent detractors of such hybrid music may cease to notice the synths, like myself. Some listeners won't care for the prancing attitude inherent in the silliness of certain scenes either, even when the emotion Polydorus is trying to convey is one of more serious connotations, like the love theme. The lack of ensemble depth at times may also bother those expecting to hear the composer's beefier orchestral mannerisms from the area, such as Conan and... Um, Robocop. That said, if you allow the score to creep into your list of favorite all-time guilty pleasures, which happens to be my favorite, and I truly appreciate the score, uh, that said, it can happen to those of you who have heard thousands of scores and ache for originality. Then Cherry 2000 could very well be a five-star score and it's a reliably refreshing change of pace that you may find yourself returning to often on a respite from the plethora of otherwise less than inspiring film music that come from the software generation of composers in subsequent decades. This fact is in part why the score has remained one of the most notable on album in the history of soundtrack CDs fetching thousands of dollars for a single copy and eventually afforded limited treatment by no less than three separate specialty labels. The original album for Cherry 2000 was for his Saraban, a very first club title in 1989, limited to 1,500 copies and plagued by a number of issues. The treatment of Cherry 2000 on the Prometheus album is subsequently substantially better than what you get on the Verez collectible, with the cues presented mostly in film order, additional material sprinkled throughout, and a correct track listing on the 2004 listing. The additional cues aren't terribly exciting or important with the exception of a rousing rendition of Lester's theme in Lights Out. Other additional cues are largely redundant and short in length, the overall time padded by three alternate mixes, only two of which are labeled as such. Lester on the Move is simply an alternate version of moving, 
and through both are entertaining. The same musical contents and master source were accessed by Entrada Records in 2011 for yet another re-release of the score on CD, this time switching the track titles and their order once again. The 1500 copy product did accomplish two purposes, primarily meeting continued demand for the score, since the 2004 album is out of print, and on any album, Cherry 2000 is fantastically overachieving score representing a composer at arguably the prime of his career, one that very closely skirts five-star territory. If you could never get a hold of Cherry 2000 in its previous forms, now is definitely the time to do so. With all the background on the score, it's surprising that the movie doesn't get more love. There was an article recently from a 2017, ironically, uh, issue of Den of Geek. The question holds, what did Cherry 2000 get right about 2017? Are there comparisons? Are there actual things that in 2017 making it a better adaptation? One thing remains, and that is the sex industry has developed their robotic system of pleasure-seeking to a greater, higher degree, uh, such as an assistant professor in ethics at a technical university. He had said, if we're talking about individuals who are not only disabled, but have been traumatized in some ways, this could be a beneficial instrument, if you will, to help them in their sexual healing process. There are absolutely some benefits to the technology, but like everything else, there's a balance. You have to strike a balance between lack of regulation. So you have to find a way to balance and you can really harness the good. I don't know what good you can get out of a sex robot, but there we have it from the quote unquote experts in the field. I find it really appalling that they even exist, but there is the tech. Apparently, that is the only similarity to the modern age. It's sad that only the sex industry gets advanced in one form of this film. I enjoyed this film, and to me, it's achieved cult status. The music is wonderful, despite many misgivings of what it is. There's some sweets of music I'd like to share with you today. First of all, I'll play Cherry 2000 main title, Flashback, Drive to Glory Hole, E Flip Sam, The Barricades, and Magneto. This is just to begin looking at the score. I really appreciate the synth music and orchestra. Thank you for listening to Soundtrack Alley. If you are an Apple podcast, please give the show a five-star rating. Check out the content over at SoundtrackAlley.com, as well as Cinematic Sound Radio, where most of my new material is posted. If you have a comment, question, or concern, please email me at SoundtrackAlley at gmail.com.